as always, welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we are going to be continuing where we left off, heading into Chapter 2. Uh, we are maybe going to be doing a recap of Chapter 1 sometime later this week. Maybe this weekend we're trying to figure out exactly how we're setting that up, but uh, we are excited to be moving into Chapter 2 because we start to see a lot more of the application around the concepts we've discussed in the first chapter. Uh, a couple housekeeping things. We have now passed 1,200 people, uh, and last week when I made calls for volunteers, we had two, and I thank those two very, very, very much, uh, but it is a bit of uh, shooting a BB gun at a freight train right now because we need a lot more people to be involved in what we're doing. Uh, we've got a lot of projects. I'm going to talk about those uh, coming up here pretty quick, but uh, we're excited to uh, sort of charge ahead and see what else we can be doing. So please, if you have an interest, uh, toss into the volunteer channel. Uh, Jack, I saw you. We're gonna, we're gonna figure. You're, we made you a moderator. You're already volunteering. You're one of the two, um, and then we'll uh, figure out what we can do. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got a couple of projects we're looking at. We've been having conversations with a lot of you guys, and while we're doing these talks, a lot of people feel the desire and need to uh, find how else we can have an impact on the world. So, as we mentioned a bit ago, we are planning on starting a zine around this. We know a lot of you are writers, some are poets, uh, some are all kinds of people, from computer graphics people to coders to whatever. Anything you'd like to submit to the zine, uh, please reach out to an admin if you haven't, or a moderator. We are taking any and all submissions, and we're trying to figure out how to go out with that. If you can help us with that zine, we would absolutely adore it. Uh, on that note, we also are working on uh, figuring out a larger collaborative book writing project. We're wanting to use all of you people uh, in the rhizomatic way, where everyone gets to edit everyone else's work and we get to maybe build something a little bit more interesting. We're excited about seeing where that goes. Uh, you'll hear a lot more about those sort of as the week goes on. Uh, again, if you have any way to contribute to the server, reach out to us. But for now, I'm going to kick it over to my wonderful, wonderful host, Craig. How are you doing, Craig? I'm doing well. Feeling good. Um, just had lunch. So uh, we're going to do this. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that uh, maybe about half of the people here have been here before and have listened to us live. And maybe there's some people here who haven't read any Deleuze at all. I hope that we don't intimidate you. In fact, um, there's a way in which this material can be presented in a very straightforward sort of way. And we hope that we can do that. Um, maybe the comment that I want to start out with today is maybe to overcome a misconception about Deleuze and Gattari's work, especially as it relates to the work of Lacan. Um, often, anti-Oedipus is seen as a takedown of Freudian psychoanalysis and Lacanian psychoanalysis. And in a sense, it is. Um, it does attack what uh, Deleuze and Gattari believe are errors or mistakes in the formulation of desire by both Freud and Lacan. But it should be understood that they look at the work of Freud and Lacan as a great and very important innovation in 20th century thought, um, especially when it comes to the discovery of the unconscious. Um, there was a an article that was going around, and maybe somebody can post it in the discussion live chat, uh, by Dan Smith, one of the great interpreters of Deleuze, 
called The Inverse Side of Structure. It's basically Dan Smith's attack on Zizek's take on Deleuze and Gattari and their work in Anti-Oedipus, where Zizek basically juxtaposes um, the older Deleuze and the logic of sense with the newer Deleuze and his um, fateful meeting with Felix Gattari, who in, in context of the essay is positioned as uh, the bringer of evil deeds into Deleuze's life, um, by Zizek anyway. Uh, but it should be noted that Deleuze himself had a pr- profound respect for Lacan and his work. And I think just the notion of admiration um, as being an important facet of Deleuze's philosophical ethos is important to point out before going in here. Um, unlike many philosophers of his time, you know, who we could call curmudgeonly, for example, Adorno, Deleuze, I mean, through his writing and through his interactions with students, just seemed filled with boundless love and admiration for every philosopher that he read. As, as many of us know, Deleuze wrote monographs on many philosophers, Hume, Kant, Bergson, and rarely in any of those monographs are you going to see an argument pitted against the the writer in such a a way uh, that we could construe it as a a complete takedown. Um, In fact, in the Dan Smith article that that I'm talking about, Deleuze quotes, he says, "Um, my ideal when I write about an author would be to write nothing that could cause him or her sadness. And uh, also on the back of the Desert Islands um, compilation of essays, there's a quote that's from one of the essays inside the, the text. It says, if you don't admire something, says Deleuze, if you don't love it, you have no reason to write a word about it. Spinoza and Nietzsche are philosophers whose critical and destructive powers are without equal. But this power always springs from affirmation, from joy, from a cult of affirmation and joy, from the exigency of life against those who would mutilate and mortify life. For me, that is philosophy itself. So in short, for Deleuze, philosophy is life, and that life is a life of affirmation. And I hope as we proceed through the text, this is something that should bring us joy. It certainly brings me joy. And um, let's let's get down to business here and start talking about psychoanalysis and familialism, the holy family. Chapter two of Antiedipus, we are in the PDF file. It is page 51 proper uh, on the edition, uh, page 74 inside the PDF if you have it. Um, I'm just going to begin, uh, begin by reading the first paragraph that traverses two pages here. After that, I'll turn over the discussion to uh, some other folks, admins, anybody who'd like to be unmuted uh, to talk about what's happening in this text. So to begin, chapter two, section one, the imperialism of Oedipus, page 51. Oedipus restrained is the figure of the daddy-mommy-me triangle, the familial constellation in person. But when psychoanalysis makes of Oedipus its dogma, it is not unaware of the existence of relations said to be pre-Oedipal in the child, exo-Oedipal in the psychotic, para-Oedipal in others. The function of Oedipus's dogma, or as the nuclear complex, is inseparable from a forcing by which the psychoanalyst as theoretician elevates himself to the conception of a generalized Oedipus. On the one hand, for each subject of either sex, he takes into consideration an intensive series of instincts, affects, and relations that link normal and positive form of the complex to its inverse or negative form. 
a standard model Oedipus, such as Freud presents in the ego and the id, which makes it possible to connect the pre-Oedipal phases with the negative complex when this seems called for. On the other hand, he takes into consideration the coexistence and extension of the subjects themselves and their multiple interactions. A group Oedipus that brings together relatives, descendants, and ascendants. It is in this manner that the schizophrenic's visible resistance to Oedipalization, the obvious absence of the Oedipal link, can be obscured in a grand parental constellation either because an accumulation of three generations is deemed necessary in order to produce a psychotic, or because an even more direct mechanism of intervention by the grandparents in the psychosis is discovered, and Oedipuses of Oedipus are constituted. To the second power, neurosis, that's father-mother, but grandma, that's psychosis. Finally, the distinction between the imaginary, capital I, and the symbolic, capital S, permits the emergence of an Oedipal structure as a system of positions and functions that do not conform to the variable figures of those who come to occupy them in a given social or pathological formation. A structural Oedipus, three plus one, that does not conform to a triangle but performs all the possible triangulations by distributing a given domain desire its object and law. So we could probably spend the next two hours just talking about this paragraph, but um, I would like to go in. There's a few questions that we have. Um, What is meant by this mommy, daddy, me triangle, right? Um, One of the things that that gets um, highlighted for me here is, uh, and especially as we go forward, this will be pointed out more directly, is how in the context of the of the presentation of Oedipus, how the analyst himself or herself gets elevated to the position of Oedipus via the general conception of Oedipus, right? And the ways in which psychoanalysis um, uh, fails to um, circumscribe uh, expressions of desire, uh, such as pre-Oedipus, group Oedipus, um, para-Oedipal, quasi-Oedipal. And how is it that psychoanalysis is able to nonetheless uh, characterize these non- or anedipal states as being on the path to becoming Oedipus and subordinating all states of desire to this, while acknowledging there are some expressions or some productions of desire that are clearly not Oedipal at all? Um, so at this point, I'll turn it over to any one of our admins who would like to offer some commentary on that paragraph. Well, there's, um, there's one question. Oh, okay. Well, we'll do Kent and then we'll do Afshin. There, there's one thing that uh, I was thinking as I was reading this, which was that, uh, you know, for, for, you know, he talks uh, about Oedipus as a dogma. And one way to read this is that this is an ideology of psychoanalysis. And so one way of reading it is that this is a critique of ideology. Um, And by ideology, are you using the Marxist definition of ideology? Uh, Just ideology in general, you know, I mean, I mean, in the sense of of dogmas. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, Afshin, your question then. On the the final couple sentences, I'm I'm coming to grasp the idea that involved in writer talking about Oedipal but Laconian imaginary and symbolic what what how do those pertain? Oh, I already have my food that I don't want to waste. So you can oh, have 
Remember the chicken strips and stuff? I didn't okay. Somebody's talking, I think. Okay. Someone, someone, someone's getting food. Yeah. Right. I heard chicken strips. <laughs> um, so, okay. Afshin, you're kind of breaking up again. I mean, um, but let me let me just recast uh, Afshin's question. So his question was about the uh, the imaginary and the symbolic, where it says finally the distinction between those two permits the emergence of an edible structure as a system of positions and functions that do not conform to the variable figure of those who come to occupy them in a given social or pathological formation. Maybe at this time we need to talk about the ways in which Lacan's formulation of psychoanalysis is a little bit different than Freud's and, and how that's sort of underneath the surface of, of what we're looking at here. And I know, Andrew, you, you have a if you want to say or Brooks, maybe too. Yeah, no, I, I, I can dive in a little bit because I think uh, let's start with uh, the line, the distinction between the imaginary and symbolic. Uh, I think it's worth actually having a conversation around what those two mean in terms of the Lacanian triad. Uh, the, the imaginary is effectively the place where the ego lives. Uh, the imaginary order is where the ego comes from during the mirror stage uh, when a child starts seeing uh, how it and impacts the world, uh, finds its identification opposing the world uh, stands in difference to the things outside of it. Uh, the, the running joke uh, in a lot of Lacanian sort of people, uh, just to steal the great quote from uh, <clears throat> Wikipedia, is uh, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real are the unholy trinity whose members could easily be called fraud, absence, and impossibility. Uh, I like that way of thinking about it. Uh, so the imaginary is that place of fraud where it understands uh, that it is not everything. Uh, the symbolic is generally, in a very general sense, the linguistic order and the way that we communicate and sort of uh, expel our ideas out into the world. Uh, it's the symbolic order is 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 how we understand things and we're able to deal with it. Uh, the real being the third part of the triad, and it is the imperceptible, that thing that we cannot understand, we cannot perceive directly. Uh, it's what the matrix is based on. Uh, I, I think those those are good ways to sort of start talking about it because they're very much coming at this from a uh, the difference between the symbolic and the imaginary is where the Oedipal comes from. And this is actually, Craig, a question I had for you on this sentence, uh, because the distinction of the imaginary and the symbolic permits the emergence of an Oedipal structure. Yes, that makes complete sense to me. As a system of positions and functions that do not conform to the variable figure of those who come to occupy them in the social or pathological formation. Uh a structural Oedipus that does not conform to a triangle, but performs all the possible triangulations. Is that a reference to the fact that this is a Lacanian triad and they're mocking that? No, I think I, I, I think what, and unfortunately, my my experience with oh, maybe it sounds like Andrew wanted to get in. I know he has a lot to say about this. Right. Yeah, this is Andrew's world. Passage. Yeah, it's a very interesting passage for me, especially, but I don't in any way see this as a jab at Lacan. Actually, what I see in this passage is a way that Lacan, you know, as we've talked about before, in in his disavowal of the importance of the Oedipus complex in, in Freud's theory, right? I see this as uh, they're acknowledging 
that Lacan, in a way, extends the Oedipal triad right, to have one more point to which it can shift at any moment, making it a bit harder to grasp. It is is how I read it, right? Yeah. That, I think- Oh, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. Really quick, really quick, Andrew. Where was my definitions of, because you know this stuff better than me, was imaginary and symbolic definitions I gave close enough? I mean, for, for this uh, level of reading, I'd say, yeah. Okay, for good. this quick overview, yeah. Um, one of the things that should be pointed out maybe at this point is that one of the things that Lacanians say to come back or to argue against anti-Oedipus is that... Um, that Lacan did not uh, indulge in the concept of Oedipus in the same way that uh, Freud did. In fact, he develops his own concepts, the, the imaginary and the symbolic, and, and this, this different Oedipal configuration. But one of the things that Deleuze and Gattari are saying here in these last two sentences is that, okay, we don't need necessarily to have this strict mommy-daddy-me triangulation. But there's a way in which the Lacanian formulation nonetheless effectuates the same kind of distribution of desire via an object, via fantasy, via a certain law, and uh, that basically performs the same process as, or a similar process to Freud's Oedipus. Yes, what is the law being referenced here? Oh, uh, who, who was that letter? It's me, Doug. Uh, okay, Doug, go, and then whoever was second can go. Go ahead. What's the law? What is the law being referenced there? I, I so, think. Oh yeah, go ahead. What I was going to cut in with would actually answer that question. Um, so the the kind of structural Oedipus that they're uh, saying Lacan uses is this idea of um, the object and the law. The, the law of the father. Um, and, and here's where it kind of edible imagery starts echoing through what is nonetheless not the classical Oedipus complex. Uh, Lacan has the law of the father as the principle of separation from the object of your desire, the object of your desire being classically your mother, but for Lacan, it is again now this structural role. So hence, law being the constitutive factor that forms the symbolic is the very thing that separates you from desire and constitute from the object of your desire and constitutes desire as lack. And that whole arrangement is the structural Oedipus that they're talking about. That's right. Um, and it, it's at this point that I would say two things. One, Gattari in particular, he says this in one of his essays in Soft Subversion, is that we we don't need to just use Freud and Lacan to understand the way that Oedipus works. In fact, we can see uh, through the work of Kafka, too, um, how Kafka is one of these sort of anti-Oedipal writers. The, The very short story before the law, which I used for my master's thesis, I think indicates this precisely where you have somebody who wants to know uh, the power and the, the origin of something, namely the law itself. But the law is presented in the story as being something that's inaccessible. And that inaccessibility is what drives the desire to obtain this thing. And that's precisely what Freud's Oedipus does. You want to have sex with your mother, you want to kill your father, but those things are made taboo by the system of Oedipus itself. 
and therefore it creates the circuit of desire through the institution of a repression. One thing, I, one thing I'd like to mention is this uh, three plus one of Oedipus. One of the things it reminds me of is the three plus one of Jung that he talks about um, with the Trinity plus Mary as the uh, the fourth, and uh, and eventually, eventually the Catholics uh, kind of changed their doctrine to uh, kind of accept that picture, which Jung was very pleased about because he had uh, uh, been been talking about that for quite a long time. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ken. I'm starting to look at Carl Jung right now in relation to Deleuze. So that's cool. It's one of the more interesting notions of this whole section, I feel, because uh, in Lacanian theory as well, especially in the later part of the theory, right, in the 70s, uh, Lacan develops this um, this algebraic formula of one plus one plus one plus a, right? In des, in designing the not two of the sexual relation, and I feel that the plus one of the three right here has the uh, similar function of a kind of always additional surplus that doesn't allow a uh, a finite structure that was there with the edible structure, right? See, it's it's very interesting with the, to look at the Jungian one because uh, the idea is that uh, the Trinity is transcendental, and so people can't relate to it. So, so a lot of times, what they do is they uh, they relate to it through Mary, the mother, and so then that uh, you know that gets into the the role of the mother in the Oedipal complex. So just to uh, bring what I said in the chat into voice for the posterity of the recording, later in the book they will specify that by plus one they're referring to the phallus as the transcendent detached object, mm. uh, which allows the entire triangle to, to form and formulate. And I, I don't... Lacan does some of the very weird things with the phallus. I think he renders it as a function rather than an object per se. Um, a lot of the things with with the phallus uh, through the years of Lacanian theory are uh, very interesting. It's one of those uh, core concepts for Lacan, which uh, shift in meaning, and that we will see identified in this chapter later. And as I was saying today in some of the chats, as a kind of transcendent signifier or yeah. a, a unification right, that operates above the the structure. Right? So, so I'd like to. Sorry. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Ken. So, so I'd like to mention that the, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, according to, I, uh, you know, you can read Lacan directly or you can read it, him through Zizek. And uh, so I'm talking about through Zizek. Um, you know, there's three of these anamorphic objects. You know, there's the phallus, there's uh, the petite object, ah, and, uh, and the little piece of the real. And these mediate each of the sides of the triangle of the imaginary, symbolic, and real. And so this plus one could be any of those anamorphic objects. Of course, yeah. And it's worth pointing out that in what you sense, some of these anamorphic objects, like the petit object up, can work in all of the three, three segments of the triad. So the object A is a kind of surplus 
the in all of the three parts, right? In the symbolic, in the real, and in the imaginary as well. Well, and it's, and it's worth also mentioning just uh, one of the things for me that took me a while with Lacan to understand what the phallus is that uh, in Freudian and sort of classic psychoanalytic theory, the phallus is very much referring to the penis. Like it's 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 the penis has these representations and is a symbol. Whereas with uh, Lacan, he's really just talking about it how it exists in the symbolic order. Like phallus is the symbol. It is a it's it is a symbol itself. Is that fair, Andrew? Yeah. The phallus and um, Lacan very much this is as you identified correctly very much distances itself from the physical organ. Yeah, it's, it's just important right? when, when we're talking about his triad and how the phallus works mm -hmm. into it. It took right. me a while to make that separation, and it seems like a lot of this chapter, because uh, I did I did my reading last night, and it seems a lot of this chapter, and as we're going on, pushes even heavier into that. Again, continuing the idea that, uh, uh, that the phallus is sort of a powerful ob not non-object mm -hmm. uh, and signifier itself just it's it's an important distinction I, I understand it and this might be wrong to be kind of the principle of separation the principle of castration itself castration being just kind of any separation from your from the object of your desire are you referring to the phallus or yeah yeah mm. I, I I wouldn't go as far to say that. I mean, uh, I think you were much closer to it when you said earlier that the father is this uh, object of uh, this symbol of separation, right? Because there's one other thing that is very very big for Lacan is the symbolic structure of the names of the father, right? And how how they operate in in the uh, in the conceptions of the analysis. Yes, and and everyone, boys and girls, and it's, I think the unique thing Lacan, Lacan talked about is that it's uh, both boys and girls, every child has to ultimately go through the process of understanding they will never be the phallus for their mother. Yes, like, yes. but in a different way, of course. Yeah. They'll, they'll for, never be the signifier. For, for women, it appears in the form of penis envy rather than the, the castration. Uh, yes, but, but penis envy is generally applied female to male that women have that uh, that females have that for males but this is much more that even boys are not the phallus because we're not talking about oh i have a dick or i don't have a dick it's not it's not that to be crude right. it's much more that the phallus being the object the the perfect object of desire the eminence of it i will never be that for my mother and that creates that separation anxiety because the father is that that the the father literally is the symbol of the phallus for the mom. And that's the beginning of kind of the Oedipal imaginary triangle that exists. And I think, so, okay, so then, uh, Andrew, that's really when they talk about the structural Oedipus three plus one, they're talking about, they're really adding the three plus one. They're talking about the Lacanian triad, the child, mother, father, plus phallus. No? Mm, interesting. Yes, I mean, they are explicit later in the book that that's what they mean. Okay, interesting. And everything's going to get reworked by Deleuze and Gattari anyway once we start talking about the uh, re repressing representation, the repressed representative. And so we'll have to be careful to make these decisions. 
questions again later on. Can I just say that, uh, you know, I mean, I think I think it could be any of the anamorphic objects. The 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 idea is that you've got a structure and it's very definite. It's a triangle, but but it has an extension, and the extension in order to apply it is variable, and so that variability and indefiniteness of the relationship between the 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 structure and that all of the all of the different cases and phenomena it's going to be applied to, it creates this uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, vagueness, and the the anamorphic objects live in that territory of the vagueness. Anyway, mm, no, and so actually, it, it'd be worth jumping. I'm going to read through the next uh, paragraph. I think it because I, I think it's. Uh, we're, we're having discussions about things that take place in the rest of the chapter, so we might as well move a little bit on. Um, it is certain that the two preceding modes of generalization attain their full scope only in structural interpretation. I think that was to Kent's point. Uh, structural interpretation makes Oedipus into a kind of universal Catholic symbol, beyond all the imaginary modalities. It makes Oedipus into a referential axis, not only for the pre-Oedipal phases, but also for the para-Oedipal varieties and the exo-Oedipal phenomena. The notion of foreclosure, for example, seems to indicate a specifically structural deficiency, by means of which the schizophrenic is, of course, repositioned on the Oedipal axis, set back into the Oedipal orbit in the perspective for example, of the three generations, where the mother was not able to posit her desire toward her own father, nor the son, consequently, toward the mother. One of Lacan's disciples writes, We are going to consider the means by which the Oedipal organization plays a role in psychoses. Next, what the forms of what the what the forms of psychotic pregenitality sorry, I'm flubbing these words, what the forms of psychotic pregenitality are and how they are able to maintain the Oedipal reference. Our preceding criticism of Oedipus therefore risks being judged totally superficially and petty, as if, as if it applied solely to an imaginary Oedipus and aimed at the role of parental figures, without at all penetrating the structure and its order of symbolic positions and functions. This uh, gives incredible context, I feel, to, to what, if I remember correctly, uh, Craig was saying earlier about many Lacanians, uh, many Lacanians uh, dismissing the Deleuze-Batarian rebuttal of right, this notion of sexuality as a, you know, Lacan didn't talk about Oedipus, so you're wrong. And, and really, I've seen this in some Lacanian circles mentioned again and again. And I think I posed this question early on, and what Craig said was uh, really resonated correctly with what I'm reading here and uh, what's being mentioned later in the book. Right? This uh, notion of Oedipus in the Zendatari isn't only used as, as they say, right, uh, imaginary Oedipus, or strictly as it pertains in the Freudian context, right, but rather a much broader uh, a much broader function of, uh, as we previously identified, reduction and uh, repression of desire and production in general, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I think one way to reformulate this whole paragraph as a kind of question 
is uh, what are like we understand that there's this thing called Oedipus that has been posited by Freud and has been then uh, developed by other psychoanalysts. The question is, what is the nature of the structure of this thing, and in what ways is it not strictly limited to our imagination? Right, and I, I think if if we kind of proceed on that point, it's like oh, we can look at the Oedipal triangle. And then from there say, okay, let's look at the way an institution like a school is set up. In what ways is that edible? Um, so I think like, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, yeah. Hold on. There was a point here I was trying to make. Um, uh, uh, someone else talk. I forget. Sorry. Anybody else want to jump in there? Actually, I think this... Maybe we, it's best we go into the next paragraph. Because, right. I mean, I can read the, the rest. Go for it. Yeah. For us, however, the problem is one of knowing if, indeed, that is where the difference enters in. Wouldn't the real difference be between Oedipus, structural as well as imaginary, and something else that all the Oedipuses crush and repress? Desired production, the machines of desire that no longer allow themselves to be reduced to the structure any more than to persons and to constitutes and to constitute the real in itself, beyond or beneath the symbolic as well as the imaginary. We in no way claim to be taking up an endeavor such as Malinowski's, showing that the figures vary according to the social form under consideration. We even believe what we are told when Oedipus is presented as a kind of invariant, but the question is altogether different. Is there an equivalence between the productions of the unconscious and this invariant, between the desiring machines and the Oedipal structure? Or rather, does not the invariant merely express the history of a long mistake throughout all its variations and modalities, this train of an endless repression? What we are calling into question is the frantic oedipalization to which psychoanalysis devotes itself, practically and theoretically, with the combined resources of image and structure. And despite some fine books by certain disciples of Lacan, we wonder if Lacan's thought really goes in this direction. Important, very. Is it merely a point of oedipalizing even the schizo, or is it a question of something else and even the contrary? Wouldn't it be better to schizophrenize, to schizophrenize the domain of the unconscious as well as the socio-historical domain so as to shatter the iron collar of Oedipus and rediscover everywhere the force of desiring production to renew on the level of the real the tie between the analytic machine, desire, and production? For the unconscious itself is no more structural than personal. It does not symbolize any more than it imagines or represents. It engineers. It is machinic. Neither imaginary nor symbolic. It is the real in itself. The impossible real, quote-unquote, and its production. And just to read the, uh, the footnote. Nevertheless... It is not because I preach a return to Freud that I'm not able to say that totem and taboo is a twisted story. And this is from Jacques Lacan in a seminar in 1970. It is in fact for that reason that we must return to Freud. No one helped me to make this known, the formations of the unconscious. I'm not saying Oedipus serves no purpose, nor that it bears no relationship with what we do. It serves no purpose for the psychoanalysts. That is indeed true. But since psychoanalysts are assuredly not psychoanalysts, that proves nothing. These are things I set forth in the appropriate time and place. That was a time when I was speaking to people who had, who had to be dealt with tactfully, 
psychoanalysts. On that level, I spoke of the paternal metaphor. I've never spoken of an Oedipus complex, end quote. Okay, so is that I being ironic or is he being serious, Lacan? Uh, what what part? Of psychoanalysts it? are assuredly not psychoanalysts. No, he, he's not being. I mean, this is one of the many points he goes over through his years of teaching, and yeah. the, the point he references as his reason, right, for holding these seminars. And uh, if somebody read how the history of the seminars progressed, right, the first 10 were held in some psychiatric clinic in front of the 40 people that were, that were there. And the ones before the first, uh, the first uh, publicly published seminar were held in his home, right? And he was always trying to lecture psychoanalysts and uh, with his return to Freud, right? Because he felt that they weren't really doing and that they weren't really making, uh, that they weren't really doing, right, what uh, what Freud instructed them to do. Right? Uh, okay, I think, so can I try to translate that couple sentences there about it serves no purposes and therefore that proves nothing? All right, I, I think I understand that. Um, mm-hmm. So he's saying that, like, uh, it's true that the actual psychoanalysts, quote unquote, people who are practicing in the psychoanalytic industry uh, have no purpose for it. But since they aren't actually doing psychoanalysis as Freud would want them to do or something like that, some some more ideal notion of psychoanalysis is not being done. That's why it proves nothing. Mm, what I feel... That he's saying, I mean, uh, I'm maybe misunderstanding what you tried to, to put forward, right? Uh, that's probably the case because I kind of lost you at the end. But again, what I feel he says is that even though these analysts, and again, maybe this is what you said, and maybe I'm reiterating, but even though the, these analysts, right, uh, go back to a certain Oedipus complex, this Oedipus complex is, is not useful to him or to to any of the analysis they're treating because the, the way the way they're doing analysis is not uh is not correct according to him yeah i think that's probably uh, a better way of saying what i was trying to say thanks <laughs> i think in this paragraph too one of the things that we need to um deal with is maybe slight overlaps between the the way the word Oedipus is used. Because there's sometimes where the, the word Oedipus is used to refer directly to Freud's Oedipus. And then there's other times at which the, the word Oedipus, particularly when they talk about Oedipal structure and Oedipalization, to which they refer to a more generalized Oedipus. Um, the way in which um, anything configured Oedipally, from that we can abstract um, the, the, the sort of structural, not the structure itself, but the, the, the structuralizing of something like an Oedipus. And the question is, how did that ever get to come about? And, and, and how has that been, and one of the big questions here is, how is that the history of a long mistake? I mean, it, it becomes noted. I mean, it becomes conceptualized under Freud. But it seems to me that they're addressing that there, there's a kind of repression that has existed historically that um, 
condenses upon uh, Freud's notion of Oedipus. As we move into Lacan's theory, it should be interesting to note that, that Lacan himself and his adherents are moving away from the notion of, of Oedipus. They go to this other relationship between the, the structural, and the, I'm sorry, the, the, the uh, imaginary and the symbolic. And what they're saying is, oh, what's going on there? And uh, it's not that they're trying to um, uh, create a revolution or maybe what's better to say is an involution of Oedipus. Like, look, there's something about the way that this term is being used that isn't sufficient to describe all kinds of phenomenon. However, us Lacanians, we're going to we're going to create this configuration over here, which more aptly circumscribes a, an abundance of psychological phenomenon. Deleuze and Guattari are stepping back from that. They're like, hey, we're not we're not interested in that in terms of how you have maybe advanced the the conception of of psychoanalysis, but we're interested in how you've employed this this notion that there is a structure upon desire that that desire is inherently structural that's what we got to challenge and that's what you lacanians aren't looking at um and 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 this is i mean there's a lot going on in here and sometimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds so i step back i i tend to look at the question like to me one of the most salient remarks in this paragraph is the whole thing about the history of a long mistake. And then um, the other part was, is it merely a matter of edipalizing even the schizo, or is it the question of something else, or even to the contrary? Wouldn't it be better to schizophrenize, to schizophrenize the domain of the unconscious as well as the socio-historical domain? So what they're saying is like, look, we're going to go after psychoanalysis as, as you are practicing it, but not only that, like we're clear that this notion of Oedipus that's being deployed in psychoanalysis has has tethers to the socio-historical domain, and we're going to show in this book how those two things are connected, and and from that connection, we're going to extrapolate this this sort of uh, larger and more uh, profound dynamic with much more with with much deeper implications than than uh, Freud's or Lacan's notion of of the Oedipus, quote-unquote. If I could just step in and then um, address the question related to foreclosure in the chat. Yeah. Uh, and just to say before I start with that, there are many, many points here I would like to address. And one interesting point to me in our continued discussion will most probably be the notion of the real, which is erected a couple of points, uh, in a couple of points during the, the whole paragraph, right? extremely interesting to me and, and how they put under quotes the impossible real right I, I need I, I think that should be addressed but to get on with the uh, the foreclosure and again I'll consult the uh, the language of psychoanalysis by Laplanche and Pontalis they say that foreclosure or repudiation is a term introduced by Jacques Lacan denoting a specific mechanism held to lie at the origin of the psychotic phenomenon and to consist in a primordial expulsion of a fundamental signifier. For example, the phallus as a signifier of the castration complex from the subject's symbolic universe. Full foreclosure is deemed to be distinct from repression in two senses. Uh, a. Foreclosed signifiers are not integrated into the subject's unconscious. And B. They do not return from the inside. They re-emerge rather in the real, particularly through the phenomenon of hallucination. And this is 
just a, a bit dense. But uh, what happens and what to address this point B, what happens with the psychotic, which which what what doesn't happen with the psychotic actually, but which happens uh, with the neurotic, and as we will see later in this chapter, right, the psychotic doesn't. Uh, in Freud and Lacan, I think, doesn't suffer from the return of the repressed, right? Uh, this is something which happens solely to the neurotic in his way of trying to trying to live with the reality, right? And suppressing the it, if we were to consult Freud, right? And in psychosis, uh, this doesn't happen. This gets so... This gets so by way of this repudiation of the, the signifiers, which uh, for Lacan are pivotal. For example, the phallus, as, he, as they say, uh, doesn't doesn't come back right in the return of the repressed, but but uh, actually in the real. Well, since you mentioned Freud, I think it's important at this juncture to note what they're going to do with Freud next here, because clearly uh, in Freud's quote-unquote, discovery of Oedipus, one of the things that he is ultimately forced to reject is a notion of free syntheses, um, something which, which has been conceptualized in chapter one of Anti-Oedipus here. And so this next paragraph that we're about to go into is going to address that. Why didn't Freud pick up a project akin to Anti-Oedipus, and why did he stick with um, the Oedipal complex. And uh, before, before we move on, though, uh, there was a question just about what the Malinsky, the Malinowski uh, reference is. Just, I just want to make sure everyone knows whatever's been talked about. Malinowski was an anthropologist who actually wrote a book on how uh, Oedipus uh, as a concept is not universal. So they're literally saying here, we are not saying that Oedipus is not universal. In fact, they fully believe it is. Like that's what that line means: is we're not setting out to, you know, destroy Oedipus and say that it's bullshit or anything like that. That's that's what that sentence is referring to. Just as a quick side no. note. Yeah, no, right. I, I think that there will be mention of Malinowski in the third chapter, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially maybe a more apt title for this book would be Anti-Oedipus with an asterisk, and then underneath it would say. We're not here to discredit the notion of Oedipus outright, <laughs> right? Imagine that title. They're trying to they're trying to Oedipus Oedipus by Oedipusing Oedipus, right? Because if you completely exclude Oedipus, then you, there's a chance that you'll self Oedipalize it again. We're to suppress all the witty Lacanians uh, anti Oedipus as an overarching structure. Yeah. So shall we continue? I'll, I'll do the next uh, very short paragraph. So, um, but what is this long history if we consider only during the period of psychoanalysis? It does not take place without doubts, detours, and repentances. Laplanche and Pontalis note that Freud discovers the Oedipus complex in 1897 in the course of his self-analysis, but that he doesn't give a generalized theoretical form to it until 1923 in The Ego and the Id. And that, between these two formulations, Oedipus leads a more or less marginal existence, confined, quote, confined, for example, to separate to a separate chapter on object choice at puberty, three essays, or to a chapter on typical dreams, interpretation of dreams. They say that this is because a certain abandonment by Freud of the theory of traumatism and seduction leads not to a univocal determination of Oedipus, but to the description as well of a spontaneous infantile sexuality of an endogenous nature. 
It is as if, quote, Freud never managed to articulate the interrelations of Oedipus and infantile sexuality, the latter referring to a biological reality development, the former to a psychic fantasy reality. Oedipus is what all but got lost, quote, for the sake of a biological realism. And with that, there is a footnote, but it's not uh, on this page. Um, maybe what we can do is let's let's go through the next paragraph too, and then the footnote is just setting Laplanche and Portalis. Uh, oh, okay, there's the I see it. Okay, does anyone want to pick up the next paragraph, and then maybe we'll interject questions after that? I can do that. Go for it. Right. So we're at, but it is. It, but is it correct? Yes, that's right. right. But is it correct to present things in this way? Did the imperialism did the imperialism of Oedipus require only the renunciation of biological realism? Or was it something else sacrificed in Oedipus to Oedipus something infinitely stronger? For what Freud and the first analysts discover is the domain of free syntheses where everything is possible. Endless connections, non-exclusive disjunctions, non-specific conjunctions, partial objects, and flows. The desiring machines pound away and throb in the depths of the unconscious. Irma's injection, the wolfman's tick-tock, Anna's coughing machine, and also all the explanatory apparatuses set into motion by Freud, all those neurobiological desiring machines. And the discovery of the productive unconscious has what appeared to be two correlates. On the one hand, the direct confrontation between desiring production and social production, between symptomatological and collective formations, given their, given their identical nature and their diff differing regimes. And, one other, and on the other hand, the repression that the social machine exercises on desiring machines and the relationship of psychic repression with social repression. This will all be lost, or at least singularly compromised, with the establishment of a sovereign Oedipus. Free association, rather than opening onto polyvocal connections, confines itself to a univocal impasse. All the chains of the unconscious are biunivocalized, linearized, suspended from despotic signifier. The whole of desiring production is crushed, subjected to the requirements of representation and to the dreary games of what is representative and represented in representation. And there is the essential thing. The re reproduction of desire gives way to a simple representation in the process as well as theory of the cure. The productive unconscious makes way for an unconscious that knows only how to express itself, express itself in myth, in tragedy, and in dream. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the sort of simple read on this paragraph, if there would be one, is to simply say that from its inception, psychoanalysis was doomed. Why? Because it failed to incorporate two things, the notion of desiring machines and the notion that uh, social production was connected to the desiring machines as we've outlined them in, in chapter one. Following that, um, what's left? Well, by introducing Oedipus, um, which is here in this paragraph is an analog uh, to despotic signifier, um, and, and other places as well, too, uh, that by introducing Oedipus, by introducing a global person or the notion of a person as being that which conditions desire, we are now confined to the realm of symbols, myth, dreams. Uh, stories uh, that that inform the the early history of psychoanalysis, 
And by by being confined to the realm of representation, what happens? Well, we, in virtue of creating a, a theory of the um, of the unconscious that is representative, one of the things that pops out is a notion of a cure that's attached to this complex symbology that that um, psychoanalysis outlines. And so it's from there that we never get an avenue back into the social once we've we've developed psychoanalysis in this way. Right. But uh, maybe a, a kind of a slightly different reading from yours. I wouldn't say that psychoanalysis was doomed from the beginning. Uh, I see this... Uh, this paragraph also is a kind of way of, and maybe this is my charitable reading, but I see it as a kind of way of uh, salvaging at least something in psychoanalysis by way of saying, you know, it's not that everything is uh, that everything is flawed, that psychoanalysis is always repression, but rather only until, only since Oedipus was incorporated, right? Oh, point taken. Because, right, when they say that this, these kind of what I like about this passage: endless connections, non-exclusive disjunctions, non-specific conjunctions, partial objects and flows. They were all off the table once Oedipus came in. Right? Yeah, and I, I think for in my account, my my uh, sort of starting point for psychoanalysis is the introduction of of Oedipus. But I, I think you're absolutely right, Andrew. I just like to mention that. Uh, one of the things that they're talking about here is the difference between representation and non-representability. And, um, you know, Deleuze talks about this quite a bit in um, Difference in Repetition. And, uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the substrate of desiring machines are, are seen by them as non-representable. And so that means, that means you can't come up with a determinate representation of it it's always a, something amorphous and vague yeah that's great yeah and I, I think this is a challenge because um being someone who was involved in psychoanalysis as well i mean if if somebody's coming to the analytics space with troubling dreams or fantasies I mean, it could be said that we're in the realm of language of, of signs and signifiers but the question is how do we connect those things to um, uh, notions of uh, the notion of social production to and and not have every uh, fantasy, every dream, every active act of imagination be conditioned by the global figures? Um, like, for example, in Freud, we have Oedipus, right? Uh, in in Jung, what do we have? We have the archetypes. Those things stand above the expressions. Well. Should I say by by the archetypes and by by Oedipus being positioned above the unconscious as a despotic signifier, the unconscious content expressed in the analytic space can be nothing but an expression. And this is what they're, Deleuze and Guattari are arguing against. They are actually productions. They're not mere representations. And the room went silent. Well, I mean, okay, to go back to the first entire chapter, isn't that that last sentence you said? They are not representations, they are productions. Isn't that essentially the whole point of the first chapter, is understanding that desires are real, they are mere representations, they exist. And the same could be said here. The whole paragraph 
especially in the part that I referenced previously, seems to mirror the kind of um, just uh, the first chapter, I feel. Greg? Um, I, I'm sorry, I had to step away for one second. Can you repeat the question? It was, it was perfect timing to step away, by the way. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. But you know, basically, the, the first chapter is essentially saying that desires are real, things are real, they are not representations, that they do exist. This is saying effectively the same thing. That Yes. That uh, the, the big thing to understand around all of these things is they aren't representations. Uh, they aren't symbols in and of themselves. It's almost coming full circle the way that Lacan looked at the phallus when he went, look, Freud says everyone wants a dick. We're going to call it the phallus. It's the symbol of the real thing. And Lacan's like, no, 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 no. It's the phallus itself is actually a symbol itself, and we need to think of it as a symbol itself and this as how it plays in everything. And it's almost like they're saying, well, actually, yes. And also the phallus as a symbol is a real thing. Yeah, there's there's two problems that that fall out of conceptualizing desire in the way that, that Freud and Lacan did, according to Dulles and Gattari. One is, um, I know Andrew and I had discussed this in a previous chat somewhere on the server that you are creating a domain uh, in which desire is functioning in some way that's inaccessible to us by elevating a signifier to a transcendent position, right? That's a problem. That's a problem for psychoanalysis. It's a problem for science. It's a problem for any sort of empirical study of desire. Uh, The second problem is, is that it strips um, what then are deemed as expressions of desire and not productions of desire of a kind of political importance, a political agency. Um, and um, yeah, and so you, th- these are the two problems. You have one side gets weakened, one side gets strengthened, and um, the, the whole field of, of, of desire is then confused. One of the things uh, with uh this, uh, you know, you know, you can see Zizek as being kind of obsessed with the real, and one of the th- one of the places where he where he gets that from is this text here, which is saying that the real is more important than the than the imaginary and the symbolic. It's more basic in some way, yeah. uh, even what though we can't, even though we can't represent it. And so, and so, and so, like for instance, I put in the chat how uh, Zizek has interpreted the real as having these imaginary, symbolic, and real components to it. Uh, I think and, you put it in the admin chat. In I the, mean, aren't we doing the discussion live chat live? Right, but did you put it there? I didn't see it. I, I think you've been posting in the admin chat. Oh, right. I think okay. So. Accidentally. Copy everything. Accidentally. I'm sorry. It's okay. We will everything. copy and post them over. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm on it, Brooks. Cool. Anyway, anyway, the, it goes back to the idea that that uh, there's a transcendental there, and it, I mean something transcendent there, and and coming to terms with what is transcendent is an important aspect of all of this. Um, there's a very good uh, quote uh, in the in the chat right now. Um, although there's a there's a minor correction to make to it. it um, it's by AMK. It says archetypes for Freud reveal to us the trans historical or even ahistorical inner workings of the human psyche 
an approach validated by Western metaphysics. Uh, Deleuze and Gattari, hold on, lost it here, might say these archetypes give us insight into the genealogy of desire and the way it has been interpreted and framed and repressed, but but they cannot reveal to us something like the primordial form of the human psyche, maybe not sure. Um, so the, the word archetypes is almost exclusively uh, reserved for Jung and all of the derivatives of Jungian psychology, like depth psychology. Although it could be argued, the um, psychotherapist James Hillman argues that Freud is actually more mythological than Jung in, in his book, Dream in the Underworld, which I, I recommend people uh, take it's a look a, at. It's an extremely good book. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's an excellent book. It, it, um, it's one of the things that helped me really understand. Uh, I came into this from a very different direction. It helped me understand Freud in a different way. Yeah. And so um, I think one of the ways, if for those interested in pursuing this, uh, this thread of like Jungian psychology, depth psychology, um, consider the ways that Deleuze and Gattari uh, in this chapter, it's going to be at the end of this chapter, where they talk about notions of intensities and intensities populating on the body without organs. There's a way I think we can think about archetypes um, in a way that that in which they are not suspended in this sort of hierarchical structure, but basically deposited in an anti-hierarchical, in a rhizomatic way across the um the body without organs. So this isn't to say like, I, I mean, having been somebody who's done Jungian psychoanalysis, there is something just fucking amazing that happens in there. Um, but there's also extreme limitations when it comes to, uh, revolutionary praxis or just a, a political understanding of the, the sort of, uh, uh, the work that you are doing in that space. Um, and this is one of the reasons I'm hesitant to throw out mythology whole cloth, although it seems Gattari is for sure, and maybe even Deleuze. Um, but there's a way in which I think we can re, um, rethink myth and rethink uh, tragedy and story in a way that's, pro- at least in, in the year 2020, that's more compatible with the the host of images and quote-unquote archetypes that that we have developed in modern society and and maybe some of these things don't uh aptly correspond to the work that we want to do in a psychoanalytic space um i think i think sometimes uh the the notions of kings and queens and um tricksters and, and that sort of thing i mean all of these these tropes uh, all of these archetypes in the in the jungian pantheon um, have proven to be excellent guides in creating stories that people are um, uh, enthralled with, like the Star Wars theory, uh, the Star Wars series, and, and, and things like that. The question is, how can we get beyond those things to create even more interesting narratives, uh, or have a, a sort of different kind of insight about the way our lives uh, occur? Um, in a way that we're not sort of uh, subservient or subordinated to these notions of archetypes. But anyway, that was a total digression, but I think yeah, maybe... I think that's good. Well, so you asked a question at the end there, which was how can we uh, yeah, find new ways to use myth, right? Yeah, and I would say there's a way, I mean, from uh, like I think a, Deleuze, a Deleuzean, Deleuzogatarian um, way of employing myth would be to explode it to reorganize its fragments, to uh, create the anti-myth, um, 
in a way to to reveal the desiring machines that have formulated myth. Because one of the things, one of the functions that myth serves in society is to coalesce chaos and uncertainty. And this is one of the, one of the ways that, uh, or one of the perspectives that Deleuze and Gattari have about myth is that when when societies form, what? yeah, go ahead. No, no, I I, I just wanted to say. Uh, I wanted to ask if we'd read the next chap next paragraph yet, and I missed it because it feels like we have, um, because it talks about dream tragedy and myth and exploding myths. Okay. And I was like, we should we should read that really quick. I don't want to interrupt you though, because it was no, a no, really just, yeah, good dream. No, I, I, I could go all day, so yeah. please no, interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll dive through and we'll get through it because I think uh, this and the next paragraph, um, we'll figure out. Someone will read it. But I think we get through those. And then I, I do want to revisit. I know the, the Star Wars reference specifically you brought up came yeah. from a discussion we had. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And my general anger at modern mythology. But, uh, but who says that dream, tragedy, and myth are adequate to the formations of the unconscious, even if the work of transformation is taken into account? Grodek remained more faithful than Freud to an auto-production of the unconscious and the co-extension of man and nature. It is as if Freud had drawn back from this world and wild production and explosive desire, wanting at all costs to restore a little over the order there, an order made classical owing to the ancient Greek theater. For what does it mean to say that Freud discovered Oedipus in his own self-analysis? Was it in his self-analysis or rather in his Gothian classical structure? In his self-analysis, he discovers something about which he remarks, well, now, that looks like Oedipus. And at first he considers this something as a variant of the familial romance, a paranoiac recording by which desire causes precisely the familial determinations to explode. It is only little by little that he makes the familial romance, on the contrary, into a mere dependence on Oedipus and that he neuroticizes everything in the unconscious at the same time as he oedipalizes, and closes the familial triangle over the entire unconscious. The schizo, there is the enemy. Desiring production is personalized, or rather, personologized. I'm not going to pronounce that correctly. I'm sure in French it sounds wonderful. Uh, imaginarized, structuralized. We have seen that the real difference or frontier did not lie between these terms, which are perhaps complementary. Production is reduced to a mere fantasy production, production of expression. The unconscious ceases to be what it is, a factory, a workshop, to become a theater, a scene, and its staging, and not even an avant-garde theater such as existed in Freud's day, Wittekind, but the classic theater, the classic order of representation. The psychoanalyst becomes a director for a private theater rather than the engineer or mechanic who sets up the units of production and grapples with collective agents of production and anti-production. So I wanted to uh, say something that that paragraph made me think of, uh, which reminded me of um, that essay we read, Nile uh, Depend Inquisi or whatever it was called. Like the way that they kind of constructed that phrase, uh, you know, kind of the, the way that what it is exactly as a name is kind of arbitrary, but they give it this very well-defined meaning. It seems like that's kind of what they are trying to do with Oedipus is, uh, yeah. And it's real meaning is kind of this fantasy, but that's what they're saying. 
Well, I, my favorite line in there, and I may be reading too much into it. If that's possible, it may not be with these guys. Um, is uh, the unconscious ceases to be what it is, a factory, a workshop, to become a theater, a scene, and it's staging. Um, that strikes me as just a fascinating uh, way to sort of talk about what the concept of Oedipus and the way classic psychoanalytic theory has changed how we refer to our unconscious and look at it rather than being a factory, one that produces desire and everyone, everything's always in production all the time around us. Much yeah, more to, depressing. yeah, much more to a theater, a scene, a staging, a place where the symbolic order dances around us almost as we expect it to and shows us one side of things. Not even a cool hipster theater. It's a basic ass theater. It's a really fucking basic theater. And they even shit on how, how basic it is. Like, it's not even avant-garde, which isn't even good theater these days. But back then, it was like cutting edge. They're like, no, no, this is like that really old, crappy theater down the street that no one goes to. And it's like, oh, that's depressing. Yeah. And to extend the metaphor further, I we are, there, there's an uh, this, this sort of atmosphere of prohibition in the theater. You, as the analysand, are not allowed to break that fourth wall. You cannot enter the theater. You can merely watch. But if you seize the means of production using schizoanalytics, yes, you can. You can restore the theater to, uh, to the workshop. Oh, and if you haven't listened to our, uh, our wonderful uh, Mal and Jack did an amazing two-part series with a few other people on our Todd, uh, who's basically where they got the idea and the words, the body without organs. If you haven't listened to it, it's on our SoundCloud. It's a two-part. It's brilliant, and it really helps understand when they're talking right here about, no, it's not even avant-garde theater. It's not even the interesting stuff. It's it's the older, and we're moving forward. We're bringing it into production rather than just plays. It's, it's perfect uh, timing to have read our Todd. For sure. The next paragraph is very interesting to me. Um, and I wanted to chime in before we move on, just quickly. I wanted to chime in even before we move on talking about myths. Uh, and uh, apropos the discussion, uh, the discussion in the chat, it's very interesting to me because um, I see here a two, two ways of uh, using myths, right? The way Freud uses it, right, to, to explain to explain everything uh, in, in the unconscious production as a way of uh, omnipotent mediator, right? And there may be more subtle use of myths, which would incorporate uh, taking certain parts of the myth and then uh, juxtaposing it with others, right? In not such an imposing way, which I think is maybe one way we can talk about myths uh, still being persistent in schizoanalysis when we get to it. Right. Because I think Craig said that Gatari is completely against myths, and it is uh, probably so as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same, but if we were adamant about incorporating myths, maybe this was one of the ways we could do it, right? To escape the uh, the kind of imposition that Freud, that, that Freud employs when he talks about the unconscious and the, uh, the Oedipus and the Hamlet, etc. Yeah, I think just as to sort of extend the disclaimer that goes with myth, I ultimately I think a um, a, a liberal interpretation of 
Gautari would incorporate myth on some level. It certainly wouldn't close the door on it completely, but it would have a, a radical sort of reintegration in, in, into the theory. Okay, so maybe we uh, split the last paragraph? Yeah, so, let's do it. That's a pager. Okay. I mean, I can start. Uh, psychoanalysis is like the Russian Revolution. We don't know where it started going bad. And this is <laughs> this is a really Zhekian moment. That's an amazing, amazing, amazing opening. We have to keep going back further to the Americans, to the First International, to the Secret Committee, to the first ruptures which signify renunciations by Freud as much as betrayals by those who break with him, to Freud himself from the moment of the discovery of Oedipus. Oedipus is the idealist turning point. Yet it cannot be said that psychoanalysis set to work unaware of desiring production. The fundamental notions of the economy of desire, work and investment, keep their importance, but are subordinated to the forms of an expressive unconscious and no longer to the formations of the productive unconscious. The anedipal nature of desiring production remains present, but it is fitted over the coordinates of Oedipus, which translated into pre-Oedipal, para-Oedipal, quasi-Oedipal, etc. The desiring machines are always there, but they no longer function except behind the cons consulting room walls behind the walls or in the wings, such as a place the primal fantasy concedes to desire machines when it reduces everything to the Oedipal scene. They continue, nevertheless, to make a hellish racket. Even the psychoanalyst can't ignore them. He tends, therefore, to make an attitude of denial. All of, this, all of that is surely true, but it's still Danny Mommy. Or the consulting do door room is written, quote, leave your desiring machines at the door, Give up your orphan and celibate machines, your tape recorder, and your little bike. Enter and allow yourself to be edipalized. Maybe you can take it from here. Right? Sure. <clears throat> Everything follows from that, beginning with the Bible character of the cure. Its interminable and highly contractual nature, which we should talk more about. Flows of speech in exchange for flows of money. All that it is needed is what is called a, a psychotic episode. After a schizophrenic flash, one day we bring our tape recorder into the analyst's office. Uh, analyst's office. Stop. With this insertion of a desiring machine, every first we have broken the contract. We are not faithful to the major principle of the exclusion of a third party. We have introduced a third element: the desiring machine in person. Yet every psychoanalyst should know that underneath Oedipus, through Oedipus, behind Oedipus, his business is with desiring machines. At the beginning, psychoanalysts could not be unaware of the forcing employed to introduce Oedipus, to inject it into the unconscious. Then Oedipus, Oedipus fell back on and appropriated desiring production as if all the productive forces emanated from Oedipus itself. The psychoanalyst became the carrier of Oedipus, the great agent of anti-production in desire, the same history as that of capital with its enchanted, miraculated world. Also at the beginning, said Marx, the first capitalist could not be aware of. And so here at the very end of this section, we have uh, a recapitulation of how the body without organs is formed, um, the, the celibate machine, the paranoiac machine, and the miraculating machine. Um, I have things that I want to say about this, but I, I, I know I'm going to go on the tear, so I'll let other people speak first. And maybe we could the footnote. Uh, I find it extremely interesting. Oh, okay, go for it. Kind of. So Jean-Jacques Abrams, 
uh, I will read the, the French title, of course, as always. And this is dialogue, so A says, You see, it really isn't so serious. I'm not your father, and I can still shout. Of course not. There, that's enough. And the doctor says, You're imitating your father at this moment. Of course not. Come off it. I'm imitating your father, the one I see in your eyes. And the doctor goes, You're trying to take the role. You can't cure people. You can only palm off your father problems on them. Problems you can't get away from. And from session to session, you drag along your victims, or the analysis, uh, that way with your father problem. I was a sick one. You were the doctor. You'd finally reversed your childhood problem with being the child to your father. And the doctor goes, I was just telephoning extension 609 to make you leave. 609, the police, to have, to have you thrown out. The police? That's it, Daddy. Your father's a policeman, and you were going to call your father to come get me. What insanity. You got all unnerved, excited, just because I brought out a little device that will let us understand what's going on here. And this is uh, apropos of the, uh, the magnetophone, the recording device, which was taken into the room. And this is a, the, a very interesting... Uh, oh, how the tables have turned moment, right? When, when the psychoanalyst get served with everything he served the analysis had before. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting that when you introduce the, the, the recording machine, it's a third thing, whereas edipalization is introducing a third thing. So there's a, a nice structural uh, symmetry there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It turns, turns the model of Oedipus on its head. Um, <laughs> this just kind of reminds me, I think, chat right now posted uh oh it's gone now um a little video of something about psycho psychotherapists and i just remember the movie something about mary where jim carrey's character is just kind of going on his monologue in the in the, the therapy room and the analyst is sitting behind him just eating a sandwich and just kind of throwing up his arms like i'm sick of hearing this shit and just kind of wiping the mayonnaise off his off his uh lips and uh when he finally gets done he just accepts the money from him and then he goes and I, I mean, one of the, the comments uh, that, that this connects to here is the notion that the, the whole tableau of psychoanalysis itself involves this, um, this exchange of money, the positioning of the analysts in a certain part of the room, this sort of one-on-one -on -one setup. There, there's a contract involved. There's a certain flow here. And there's, so, there's a lot of comedy that that's out there. Um, I, and yeah, somebody just posted the, the argument thing on uh, Monty Python where, uh, you know, the whole tableau, the analyst exploded by this sort of comedic injection into the environment. And that's what you see a little bit here. Uh, the, the Oedipal environment is, is highly structured. It involves money. It involves a contract. It involves this sort of interminable relationship, like does anyone ever actually get cured in this environment? And so these are some of the, the sort of practical criticisms that are being leveled at the institution of psychoanalysis. And this, I think, for Deleuze and Gattari, is part and parcel of their attack on Oedipus. Uh, I would I would take it a step because one of the things people are asking is when we talk about Oedipus falling back on say Robert Sore they they mentioned that a couple times in here uh, specifically what they're talking about I I as I interpret it and Craig or anyone else please uh, as yeah. always jump in um, um, 
the first time uh, analysts sat down and said, oh, Oedipus is involved in this, they had to know underneath that the business was with desiring machines. They That the first time they were bringing it up, they were having this discussion around how desiring machines would be. At some point, psychoanalysis became so rote and uh, became so... Uh, the stage, the play, the the natural semiotics, that Oedipus was simply integrated into that very basic, almost reactive, symbolic order where they would just bring it up, knee jerk. That oh, if it's naturally, it's, this is Oedipus. They're not not t- taking into account the uh, the sort of nature of the desiring machines or how it fit in. And now it's so completely by rote that it's almost boring, at at least at the time of this text, to bring up Oedipus to talk about it in terms of psychoanalysis. And so this is is what they're talking about when it falls back on. They're talking about uh, it becomes part of the sort of natural way that things are done. It's just always the way it's been, obviously. Uh, is that's what they're referring to? Not necessarily that uh, it is a socius or it is the body without organs. It's just that it becomes ensconced inside of that very repetitive, expected nature of psychoanalysis. Now. No, that's that's I think it precisely it, Brooks. Um, it's miraculating the world. I, I mean, the presupposition of, of Oedipus in the psychoanalytic environment not only has implications for the therapy, but also the accoutrements of the, the world of therapy, the therapist, him or herself, the, the phone that's in the room, the money that's exchanged, and none of that ever gets questioned. Um, yeah, and the, the position of the analyst is never challenged in that environment. Right. They in some right. sense, their, their authority is entirely presupposed. Well, and, and a lot of this comes back in um, my my way into Deleuze and Guattari was through uh, cinema one and two. And a lot of that and this uh, comes back on the concept of uh, understanding why things are done and sort of that where the desiring machines have been and the things you take for granted. Uh, I used to open presentations. Deleuze had this great quote uh, that uh, no, there's no such thing as a blank sheet of paper. When a writer starts, they need to first understand that, well, the sheet of paper may be blank, their mind is not, and that they need to understand all of the cliches, tropes, and paint that is already on the page before you even start writing. That's right. And this is very reminiscent of that concept when uh, a psychoanalyst starts in, they need to understand what is already written on the paper, even though the paper may seem empty. Yeah. And and that that um, that line from Deleuze comes from his work on Francis Bacon. Um, and, and his yes, book. it does. I love yeah. that stuff. Yeah. So which is a, which is an excellent and, and probably among all the Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari books, maybe uh, one of the most underrated. Yeah, so when they when they use the term falls back on, and they do that a lot from here out, that they, when they aren't referring literally to the socius, they are talking about when things get subsumed by the uh, automatic nature of everyday life. Uh, if we think about um, uh, filmmaking uh, specifically, once upon a time, someone did the first edit. The reason they did the edit was because they had no other option to get to the moment they needed. They needed to produce something to fit their desire. And it was very particular around a thing they needed. So when they put that edit in the film, it was a revolutionary, like, holy shit, what the fuck am I doing? And really, for a while, people really took time to figure out when they needed to edit. It's not the case anymore. 
especially in modern cinema, if you watch, edits are thrown in fucking left, right, and center, usually to actually obscure what is happening on screen rather than to actually be a positive force inside of it. So you would say, and to steal their terminology, the edit, uh, the film falls back on the edit and it subsumes it into its natural process. And we need to get back to understanding really what desiring machines are creating that production. Now, yeah, that's, I think, another great metaphor, um, or at least instance, uh, you know, to talk about th this process. And I think it also reflects the fact that we can be oedipalized, quote unquote, by any number of institutions, any number of practices. Anytime uh, any practice, routine, or facet of a practice or routine becomes unquestioned or seems as if, oh, that's just naturally part of how we do things. I mean, it could be even something as, um, I mean, even the notion that men and landholders are the ones who write the right? Uh, any way that gets sort yes, of completely. into the system and, and remains unquestioned. Um, is what we're talking about here. Yeah, so um, the the core example from Marx that they keep falling back to, uh, I, I think is worth reemphasizing, and that is uh, capital as this body on which things are miraculated. Um, in, the, in the West, in the United States at least, uh, one incarnation of that that we hear all the time is describing capitalists as job creators. Mm -hmm. So that the forces of capital, the, the fact of ownership becomes responsible for creating the work that actually created the capital. Um, so it's a, it's a reversal of agency. Yeah, and to, to follow your point, um, I just did a little writing last night after I took notes on this section. And the, the crisis that we're going through right now with the pandemic I think, reveals a two-pronged threat to capital. One is that in the absence of the regular market flows that we're accustomed to, gives rise to the possibility of maybe some other regime or some other economy to spring up, although I believe it's unlikely that it will take over. But the other thing that is laid bare, um, and we see this a lot in memes and commentary on the situation right now, is that the, um, you know, uh, somehow, these past six weeks, despite not people not occupying shopping malls and high-priced restaurants, you know, we are still carrying on. How is that the case? How, like, is it possible that we can exist at a level where we're not spending as much money or producing as much? Uh, in a sense, it's almost as if some of the desiring machines that compose capitalism are being laid bare by the conditions of the pandemic. Andrew, you, you wanted to say something? No. Are you sure? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's just, it's a fascinating thing. And I'd love at some point, uh, someone asked and mentioned, and I think it would be worthwhile uh, to have a discussion or breakout sessions or something over the next week or two, bringing in some, some of you who are better at Jung, better at Freud and better at Lacan than others, to really talk about their influences on the losing Atarian on the time period, because I think each one of them has significant impact. Uh, obviously, I think Lacan more than more than a lot, uh, 
because of their their terminology around things, but all of them have impact. And I do not have almost any real understanding of, you know, Freud to any deep level or uh, Jung either. So a uh, psychology discussion would be really great. Yeah, that's right, Jack. That'd be really nice. So just a thought. Uh, hit me up if you want to do that. Anyone. Yeah. Especially you, Andrew. I mean, um, I'll gladly do one for the con. Uh, I just like to mention that, uh, you know, in uh, Jung, you know, there's been a kind of revolution in Jung studies with the publication of his his red book, and uh, which was a self psychoanalysis that he did, um, and he he wrote it down and uh, and did the artwork in it, and so it revealed, you know, kind of like the 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 practical method that he was using on himself which caused uh Jungians to realize that you know maybe a lot of the conceptualizations they had of it were not accurate could you say uh in particular one misconception they may have had uh well okay so for me the 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 key point about the red book is the relationship to um uh, Nietzsche's uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, he specifically in his red book distances himself from Nietzsche, trying to say that what he's doing is different from what Nietzsche did in Thus Spake Zarathustra. But it's clear reading the red book that, you know, I mean, he's basically taking over uh, almost everything from Nietzsche. And so, um, you know, I mean, it's just an interesting thing to contrast the two uh, approaches. Yeah, it might be worth mentioning, too, that Carl Jung never intended to publish the Red Book, but it was published, what, maybe in 2009 or 10? Yeah, it's set in a bank vault all these years because, it, you know, it's kind of uh, has its scandalous qualities to it. Yeah. Also, it sounds like it, his quote about it is to the casual observer, it would read like madness. Really makes me want to read it now. Yeah, I have the one of the original massive copies of that book in in my place, and um, it's it's definitely worth looking at. I mean, it, it's it's actually pretty inspiring. If if you're the kind of person who likes to sit in a cafe and doodle in a journal, this guy's going to blow your mind. You know, and uh, uh, Nietzsche wrote uh, Birth of Tragedy, where he, he talks about, uh, you know, Apollo and Dionysius as being the basic opposites in Greek uh, culture. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that Apollo was a, um, a wolf god that was in charge of, um, of initiations. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, and so, you know, if you go over to India, Apollo is basically Brahma and uh, Dionysius is Shiva. Mm. So, 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 and it's interesting, you know, to contrast Nietzsche and, and uh, um, uh, uh, Jung, because, because Jung takes the, the, the root of individuation, which is basically an Apollo-in uh, way, uh, way of... Uh, um, differentiating yourself and uh 
Nietzsche, of course, identifies more and more with Dionysius until he's signing his letters, Dionysius at the end. Yeah. I've got a question. Um, so on the uh, reference in the last sentence of the section to um, capital and its enchanted, miraculated world, that's referring to uh, commodity fetishization, right? Hmm. Uh, to a point, um, not just commodities is reducible or in so, some way to capital. Well, and everything that, that came before capital, right? It's the entire history of capital, so everything... Uh, for that um hmm. it's capital taking credit yeah so what are we talking about in the uh the and, march reference and, yeah, and, and, yeah. sorry go ahead but i think everyone wants to jump in here because the first the first chapter used the term uh, miraculated in specifically around uh, desire that emanates from the body without organs. So capital's desire that emanates is the miraculated world. So it, in this case, that would pro in this would be referring to that would be my guess. I mean, one of the the uh, immediate sort of go to connections I make is to Mark Fisher's notion of capitalist realism, and so there's a way in which we can read miraculated not just under the system of capital, but even under the system of feudalism, that the, the current like, uh, political economy is really the, the only or the ultimate political economy. And how could it be imagined any other way? Um, can we imagine capital? Can we imagine the psychoanalytic space to be different than it actually is w without an analyst, for example, or without payments, without the phone? <laughs> Everything that's mentioned in there. Uh, well, one other thing I'd like to mention is the difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Um, you know, basically, there's been a rejection in America of psychoanalysis as not working. And there's been the development of a whole field called psychoanalysis. And it's just, I mean, psychotherapy. And it's just kind of interesting that um, uh, philosophy is obsessed with Freud and psychoanalysis. Um, and completely ignores psychotherapy. Mm. And so uh, it's just, you know, just to mention that there is this alternative uh, world out there of therapy that, uh, you know, should be explored and is philosophical in its own way. But that's weird. Many of the, uh, of the, the psychotherapeutic modalities that have, ar that have arisen right now after uh, the beginning of the 20th century, or let's say after Freud, right, uh, have taken much from psychoanalysis and uh, don't credit don't credit psychoanalysis in turn. And uh, what I feel that many analysts uh, pride themselves upon, right, is sticking to their concepts and not going overboard into different theories, right. Just because uh, all of these uh, modalities I was speaking of just a second ago, right, took so much from psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis and then um, refurnished the concepts in a different guise to use them for the different uh, different applications, right? So, so I, I wouldn't say that many many analysts would be happy to to just go into these different modalities and explore, say, right? Um, I'm just going to verbally address a question that was posed in the chat. It was from ANK again. Um, they say that, um, and I'm just going to recast their question here. 
um, I was understanding Oedipus as a territory produced as a compensation for the deterritorialization desire associated with the history of capitalism, liberalism. Oedipus produced reactively. Is this wrong? Uh, I think at this juncture in the text, the one thing that we can say, there is a history to Oedipus. Um, we'll definitely find out all about that in chapter three. What Deleuze and Gattari are intent on noting is that the the form of Oedipus in psychoanalysis that we get through Freud and maybe gets uh, reiterated structurally uh, in Lacan is um, not the final form of Oedipus and not the first form of Oedipus. And how, how do we know this? I mean, is there a way that we can sort of empirically verify this? Certainly, we just have to look at the history of repression through the history of the incest taboo and the way that the incest taboo takes shape over different kinds of societies. And so what Deleuze and Gattari are trying to do here is, how does this notion of an incest taboo then become extrapolated on other kinds of taboos? Um, namely, the, the taboo of challenging your boss, the, the taboo of uh, challenging the state would be another one. Um, but that's, I, I just made a very quick connection here, but um, it's coming. It's coming down the line in, in chapter three, for sure. Um, psychoanalysis is also for the wealthy. Uh, maybe I'll say something about that right now. I didn't have to pay for my Jungian, uh, my sessions of Jungian analysis, but they cost $200 an hour. And this is one that, just apropos of what I didn't say when, when Kent, in my uh, response to Kent previously, one of the, the biggest points of these other uh, psychotherapeutic modalities I was speaking of is that they're much shorter. For, for mm -hmm. example, CBT can uh, can bring the, the cure to the patient, if we were to call it this, of course, quote-unquote, cure to the patient, in about two or three months, right? Whereas uh, psychoanalysis can last for years and... Uh, have even uh, twice a week meetings without <clears throat> reaching an end in uh, in the foreseeable future. In the foreseeable future, right? Which is uh, one more aspect that brought to the to the downfall, let's say, of psychoanalysis uh, in comparison to two other modalities of psychotherapy. Well, I I, ju I just like to mention that the the psychotherapy uh, movement. Uh, you know, it's part of American pragmatism yeah. that uh, they wanted to find something that worked and they, that worked as quickly as possible. And so they, they basically developed myriad different approaches that different people thought worked. And, um, and, and they didn't care so much about their theory. Yeah. Uh, actually, the creator of cognitive behavioral therapy, Albert Ellis, was originally a, Fre a Freudian psychoanalyst. And I think his turn to uh, CBT uh, definitely reflects the, the tendency of American uh, psychiatric and psychological practices that Kent's referring to. Um, it's interesting, uh, working in the, the prison environment where I work, I, I've read a lot on CBT. It's actually incorporated into the programs that I, um, that I and, and the curriculum that I use with the inmates there. Uh, and also, I've read a lot of Stoicism and the, the, the current resurgence of Stoicism and with in conjunction with CBT. And actually, Stoicism is where 
where Albert Ellis got his idea for CBT. Um, and what's interesting about the, this current resurgence of Stoicism is, and I think there is an, an inherent reactionary thread in Stoicism, which is that you can manage suffering and anxiety at the level of the individual, which, I mean, in, in some cases is true. I mean, at, at some level, yes, it is, but it does not do anything to mitigate any any sort of uh, other motivators of stress and anxiety in the social field per se. But um, one of the other interesting things to note is that part of the, the uh, stoic politics or ethics is about justice and um, uh, basically... Uh, I guess you would say, um, furthering the cause of justice, creating a more just society. That doesn't get focused on at all in today's resurgence of Stoicism. In fact, it, it's rather the opposite. Uh, a lot of those Stoics seem to be going the, the Jordan Peterson route and, 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 and taking up the mantle of the, the self-help guru. And what is today's um, equivalent of Stoicism, of the Stoic movement? Um, there's, um, there's one person, there's a, there's a few people who are jumping on the train. There's a, there's one, uh, philosopher named Massimo Piliucci. Uh, he's, he's actually probably the foremost publisher. He has a book called how to be a stoic. Uh, there's also William Irvine who wrote a guide for stoics. He also has a book about on how to take an insult and how we should be glad to accept an insult from someone. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, th this is the challenge, I mean, in terms of outlining the ethics uh, of Deleuze and Guattari, because on, on one level, um, and, and it should be mentioned that Deleuze has his own engagement with Stoicism, uh, Stoic metaphysics. And the question is whether his engagement with the metaphysics condenses upon his ethical theory. But, or it informs his ethical theory. Anyway, the, my, my question is, um, you know, how can we look at the tools that CBT and, and Stoicism provide us? Because I, I think there's actually some really great stuff in there um, in terms of just managing stress, managing anxiety, that sort of thing, but connect it to these other larger issues. It, 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 it's a kind of discipline um it, it's a it's a form of ascetic practice but the but in line with nietzsche nietzsche's criticism of stoicism was is that it was actually life denying it that kind of fatalism was about cutting off oneself from their their connection to the, their their life force and their vitality and i think deleuze would probably be on board with that criticism of stoicism to to a point um but i i think all of this is interesting like we're just making a big pot of of stuff related to psychoanalysis, uh, psychotherapy, stoicism, Jordan Peterson. It's all in there. And now we have Deleuze and Gattari as a mediator to like sort of like look at this big stew that we're making. I I, I really like this, and and I hope some great writing comes out of of this engagement. Can I ask a couple uh, devil's advocate questions here? Sure. So, like, on the other hand, couldn't we see this sort of like limited color palette that psychoanalysts are painting in is kind of forcing them to be more creative perhaps you know that's sort of that. yeah that's some, just sort of restricting your way sometimes helps your creative process uh you know be more decisive i guess mm, but what's the what, what's the yeah, what would be process 
Yeah, like, like an analysis of the analysand. Like um, their thought process. Like I, I think this might be part of why Lacan went so far in his kind of structuralist or post-structuralist direction with these with this highly abstract Im- imaginary and symbolic. Because it is so abstract, it is hugely applicable. And, and from there we can say, oh, well, so clearly this is the correct theory of mind, which maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Either way, it's abstraction is what makes it so flexible. I, I, I want to answer Doug's question, too, and I'll, I'll use the example of Jungian psychotherapy, or psychoanalysis, rather. Um, I, I think about my experiences inside the, um, the analytic space, and my analyst, he was actually very uh, well-read in like the Jewish tradition of Kabbalah and things like that. I'm not Jewish, but often these stories about the, the Bible would come up and Jewish traditions would come up. And what I actually appreciated about it is that I didn't have a connection with those sorts of things. I mean, except for maybe the fact that I disavowed Christianity, you know, sometime in my uh, late teens, or early 20s. Um, but coming back to those stories definitely gave me like a kind of uh, like a koan almost, a sort of something to meditate upon. But I think the problem is if we situate those those images, those narratives in such a way uh, as to be, <clears throat> I don't know, like a despotic signifier in the sense that these are somehow over and above, that these, these stories somehow lie outside of the realm of desire and that they, they provide one lens of interpretation. And I like the, the sort of schizoanalytic notion that Maybe we could use somebody like Kafka or an author like David Foster Wallace, or maybe there's a way that we could even read Harry Potter and use, uh, or a video game as a way to um, in, interpret or engage with uh, anxiety, engage with self-doubt, engage with um, you know, ambivalence of thinking or, or, or whatever the case may be, and use that as a medium of interpretation. I think when we limit the scope of our interpretation to these these hallowed archetypes and these hallowed narratives, that's that's when we're we're riding on a problem. This is uh, that actually reminds me of something that, and, and this is not to endorse certainly uh, everything that this man has ever written, but it it reminds me of some of Nick Land's early work when he was uh, really drawing heavily upon Deleuze and Guattari. Um, he would try to do like divination with QWERTY keyboards, right? He he would use clearly highly artificial things to do all sorts of interpretation of the nature of reality. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that falls right in line with what Deleuze and Gattari are, are doing. Like, I mean, having a conversation with a, a keyboard synthesizer or something, you know, like, like what comes out of the, an active imagination session when you dialogue with an inanimate object. I, I mean, you can produce some interesting things. And somebody techno mysticism. I say that again, Doug. A bit of a techno mysticism. Sure, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a really creative way to engage uh, oneself. Um, and I think part of the, the the challenge of of Deleuze's ethics is is to be creative and, and break some of these boundaries. And not to subordinate ourselves to these these dominant narratives. Like I, I think there's a way in which 
for example, I mean, I live close to Santa Barbara where Pacifica University is. I have a friend who's a minister who actually studied mythology there and studied depth psychology, and I'm kind of connected with that community. And there's a way in which, um, and I, I mean, this is kind of an indictment, uh, a sort of ad hominem attack on on people who are involved with that. But sometimes I, I see it as a little bit too granola, a little bit too, uh, I, I think there's a lot of recapitulation of the same images, the same sort of affects. And I think there's a way that um, like the sphere of depth, depth psychology and Jungian psychology can be very limiting to one's creativity in as much as for some people it, it can be, it can open them up to the possibility of like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm painting these mandalas. I'm doing the sand play over here. Creative things are happening. There's people who haven't been involved with those things. And maybe for those people, that might be um, the right spot to be in, because maybe interesting things are happening for them. But if for some other... Uh, ask my other uh, devil's advocate question before we uh, run out of time. <laughs> oh, sure. Right. So the other thing is, there, um, you know, we're talking about how, like, the treatment doesn't end, potentially, but, like, you know, maybe given the fact that we still live under capitalism, wouldn't we actually expect that if uh, psychoanalysis was good and servicing its uh customers well yeah i mean return. The, the 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 whole tableau of psychoanalysis looks like a subscription service or um a rental agreement right right yeah so uh, but it's so weird i mean what i um uh, we'll get to this later in the chapter i think in the next section uh right when they talk about freud's essays uh, analysis terminable and interminable right which is sometimes translated as analysis infinite, analysis finite. Uh, I feel that even though psychoanalysis is sometimes reproached as being endless, I see schizoanalysis as a kind of even longer and even openly unterminable process. And I don't know whether you guys feel like this or not, but it seems to me like a... Uh, gradual continuation of these because you know if we take desire as ultimately productive and uh, as always producing i don't see a way that it can terminate right yeah i mean i i wonder I is mean, there a need for it to terminate well the 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 idea with psychoanalysis is that you're ill and so you will be cured at some point. Where and I think that's the the difference between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis is that it doesn't um, it doesn't put the disease or the quote unquote illness on an individual, right? I mean, it's I think one of the one of the goals of schizoanalysis is to develop in the the schizoanalysand uh, or the schizoanalyst. Uh, a broader view of how desire functions in the social field and which it's constantly evolving. So uh, it's about developing a multiplicity of lenses, um, uh, a, a, a multiplicity of, of nodes of interpretation and, and interaction and creation. Um, and I, I think th in one sense, there's, there's definitely a stronger sense of affirmation um, and less resignation in the schizo schizoanalytic context than there is in the psychoanalytic context. Why? Because the the analysis under psychoanalysis gives up willingly a lot of their authority in order to be analyzed. 
And part of schizoanalysis is about um, transversality, basically creating a, a, a network in which authority shifts contextually, depending on, on the nature of the schizoanalytic group. And now we're getting into what I love about this book and the stuff I've gotten out of it. Now I'm understanding actually a lot more of it. Um, when we talk about video games, and I've, I know I've had this conversation with a few people um, in here, video games to me are just the most utterly fascinating form of ways that people have narratives and emergent storytelling. Uh, the, what emergent storytelling is, just as a very quick sort of summation, uh, there's a game called The Sims. The Sims, at a narrative level, is about you managing a small family, making them go to work, have a life, build a home, make it bigger, make the home, you know, be successful. It's kind of like a mini life simulator and relationship simulator. But uh, the emergent abilities of the systems that exist in there I mean people have the opportunity to do far more. They often don't because that is the expected narrative that you're going through. But uh, a fun way to play the game instead is actually to play as a homeless person. And you can. You can actually play The Sims as a homeless person sleeping on benches, moving around different houses. This separation of the expected symbolic narrative that you go through in games versus the emergent properties of the interacting simulations is one of the things for me that I've been trying to sort of yank out of Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus and their other books about how we can basically utilize uh, the nature of video game development and design in uh, schizoanalytic uh, storytelling, basically. Brooks, I, that's so awesome that you mentioned that. I want to dig deep into that, but I don't want to forget that we were going to talk about Star Wars. We we, we do have to at some point. Yeah. Uh, Can I mention something uh, as well? Before you get into Star Wars. Oh, wait, uh, Park Bench uh, chimed in, and we haven't yeah, heard it. I was just going to say that it's interesting, too, that, uh, Brooks, what you're saying, because I think if you think about games as a medium, there's this kind of promise of the idea of interactivity and of being able to inhabit these different experiences, these like semiotic chambers in the holodeck to, to go through different kinds of experiences. And games now are finally getting to the point of maturity where they're, they're exploring these things, but there's a lot of interesting tensions there. Like uh, another text, I keep proposing text that we could look at. Well, another text that we could kind of look at is the game Hellblade that came out uh, a few years ago that was kind of pitched as a game about mental health. And it's specifically, it's using kind of Norse and like Viking mythology, but you're playing this warrior woman who is going through a kind of schizophrenic break. And the game got a lot of praise for the way it depicted that. And it's gotten all these awards, but I've also read a lot of interesting sort of critiques of it and the way it portrays it. And a lot of them kind of hinge on this idea of, yeah, in what way could we use these experiences to create empathy? Sure. But then if you need to be sort of like told and sort of ideologically explained what an experience is in order to empathize with it, you know, are, are you capable of empathy in the first place? And that, or, or that maybe that what empathy comes from is from somewhere else. So I think there's actually a lot of room and it's good that you bring it up. I mean, maybe in breakout discussions, we could talk about, you know, to what extent does it For offer sure. a potential sure. that movies and, and other forms of art even theater and the kind of the Arto discussions we were talking about, about the immediacy of experience in theater. What does it offer that these other forms don't offer? And, and what are some of the pitfalls as well? Well, we're riding right up on two o'clock. Uh, Brooks, do you want to get the last mm -hmm. word today? 
And just before that, uh, I would like to mention that, as always, tomorrow we will be doing a recap um, at 12 p.m. 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and uh, all the different time zones. Right. So, so any questions will be much appreciated. I, I think Kent and I will uh, lead the discussion again. So, yeah, hope to see you there. And uh, I think with that, we will end the chat for the day. Uh, do keep an eye out this week. We're going to be launching a few things and starting to get some stuff going. If you have any desires to help, write, get involved, don't hesitate to reach out because we would absolutely love to have you involved in everything we do. Uh, but thank you guys very much for today. And we look forward to you joining the review tomorrow and also Thursday when we move on to Chapter 2, Session 2. Okay. It's been a lot. All right. Thank you, folks. We'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye.